David Suisse, welcome to my podcast. There are so many things in the world that are difficult to understand, and one of them is everything that's going on right now in, in the greater Middle East, especially uh, with Iran. And we're delighted today to have my friend Lisa Daftari, who is a, actually one of the world's experts on all these subjects. Lisa, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So, you know, you've spent thousands of hours in your life. You've got uh, graduate degrees in political science in this whole world. You worked at think tanks. You've been a commentator on, on television for years. And you also have your own following now with... Uh, What's it called? The news desk that you have every morning? The foreign desk. Foreign yeah, desk. com. Got to do yeah, my plug. Exactly. So <laughs> you spend your whole life on this. And and most of our listeners, that's not what they do. You know, they all have regular jobs. And right. then they, they end up seeing a news report here and there uh, on Iran. And I guess we're trying to take a lot of those complexities and try to make sense of what's happening right now. So let's start with, with uh, something that's happening today. Right, the bombings of the those oil tanks. The oil tanks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And everyone wants to know what does this mean? Are we going to war? Right. That's the basic question. Well, some people want to know what it's going to mean at the at the uh, gas station. Right. <laughs> the more the pra- the pragmatic crowd, uh, which is a, a great question, uh, considering what we have going on with China and uh, more scares in, in terms of of. of of our foreign policy and what is what does that mean but with regards to what's going on is this just another provocation is it more saber rattling by the iranian regime which we have seen time and again or is this time different i think every time when there is this type of escalation the question is is this time different And as you said people are busy and um they they don't know the nuances and i think that's the operative word whenever you look at anything going on in the middle east whether it's you know the israeli palestinian situation whether it's what's going on uh you know in syria with the many different layers um going you know going on there with with their politics with iran it, it's all about nuance to understand uh, for example, the difference between the people and the government, to understand the government and what its goal is, to understand the sanctions on Iran. And before, you know, I, I think people are so quick in this country to, to take sides and to say, I'm for the Iran deal. I'm against the Iran deal. Well, why? Why do you think or, or how do you think that fits into the bigger picture of how or what the best outcome would be for U.S. foreign policy? And what is, what does does the U.S. want to see come out of, of Iran in terms of stabilization, in terms of um, really curbing the Iranian regime's weapons um, program, in terms of seeing a, a better day for Iranian people, in terms of, of human rights? Yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the election of Ahmadinejad, the president of, of Iran. It was his re-election in 2009, which led to the Green Revolution. It brings about so many questions as to what's changed in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. with this fight for freedom, uh, which, again, goes hand in hand and very much parallel to what the U.S. wants to see in terms of of Iran's foreign policy. Yeah. You know, I I have I'll confess because I I'm so far from having your level of knowledge. When I when I deal with a complex issue that comes up, I just sort of go back to some truths that I can count on. So when the Iran deal was being negotiated by the Obama administration, there are two truths that I sort of was hanging on to. The first truth was I had a complete faith in the evil of the regime. Yes. 
you know. That's pretty I, safe. I just had, I, 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 you know, the rapes of women in jails and the, the beheading of gays and all that kind of stuff and the desire to regain the glory of the Persian Empire from the old days, right. which had been taken over by the Ottoman Empire, this sense of glory and this sense of uh, anti-Jewish and anti-Israel, I just had total faith in that, that this was not a regime that you can buy with money. Uh, yeah. It's not a regime that's just like in Egypt, for example, that uh, the current leader is like nationalistic and they're sure. sort of practical. This was ideologically based and that ideology had really a sense of evil, right? Yeah. So I counted on that. The second thing that I looked at is I just felt that the Americans wanted to deal too badly and you're going into a souk and you're telling them you, you, you got to have that carpet because if you don't, you know, you must have it. So I figured with those two truths, I said, we're going to get a really bad deal. Right. And especially knowing how likely they were to cheat. That's it. I didn't go to a think tank. I didn't do a PhD. That's yeah, it. That's, that's right. it. You know, and then I, I'm thinking if I'm the woman who got raped in, in, in the jail in Iran, am I going to like this deal or not? Right. right. And, and, and that kept me going for like six months. Right. right. But you have so much more knowledge. Right. So you look at a thing like the deal. What was going through your mind? What were you writing about the deal right. as, as it was happening? Because it was the biggest issue in the Jewish world right. for a whole year. And it really tore us apart right. because some were for and some were against. Yeah, I think the, those who are, are you know, for or against, again, you know, what, what's the reasoning behind the deal from the from the perspective of U.S. foreign policy? When you release that much money and you basically surrender your leverage that you have when you have an upper hand and you said it perfectly when you walk into the, the suit and say i need to have that you you give up your leverage you give up your upper hand because you're at the at, you're the vulnerable one now and when the united states made it clear that a bad deal was better than no deal that's exactly what we got you know um, as a young child a, uh, a rabbi once taught me um, when you settle for less than you deserve you get less than you settled for and I think that's exactly what happened to the United States. Now, many of us knew when any kind of money would come into the hands of the regime, it wouldn't go to the mainstream. It wasn't going to go to the people. So even within Iran, a very small percentage of the population cheered. Um, I know people are going to uh, kind of debate me on this and say it was much more than a small percentage of the population. But I'll, 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 I'll tell you why I say small percentage, because it was very their celebration of the deal was very short-lived, because most have become quite aware of what their government is doing, meaning they knew that that money was going to come straight from the U.S. and go right out to Syria, right out to Hezbollah, right out to Lebanon, right out to Gaza. Which is what happened. Which is exactly what happened. And when you have someone like John Kerry say, well, and, and I don't remember his exact words, but it was something to the effect of, we know some of this money will go into terrorism. Well, that's not, that's not very hopeful for the American people, for the American taxpayer, for for anyone, you know, when, when Americans have a point of view about the Iran deal, it usually, and, I, and I'll say this very openly, it has more to do with the president cutting that deal than it has to do with the actual deal because mm -hmm. it's very, people know very minimally about the Iran deal. When you tell them about the facts, meaning the gross human rights violations that you pointed to, when you talk about the people of Iran having uh, such qualms with their government putting the money, again, people are starving and that money being put into terrorism and being put into other, you know, the slogans on the street in Iran are very telling and very beautiful and poetic and they usually rhyme. And the, the one that we're hearing very often with these pop-up 
uh, protests are, you know, um, not Gaza and not Lebanon. I only die for Iran. Meaning, what what are you doing? Why are you mm. pouring our money into terror? Why can't we Why get some of that Feed money? your family first mm. and then feed, you know, the neighbors. So, you know, let's take it from the people of Iran as to what the reality of the situation is. Rather than blaming, for example, Donald Trump for pulling out of the deal or praising President Obama for getting us into the deal, we now have a slew of 2020 candidates for presidency uh, on, on the Democratic ticket, and they all promise to get back into the Iran deal. And I wish I could have them for about five minutes to like line them up on a panel and say why. Why do we need to get back into the Iran deal when you have a U.N. watchdog organization two days ago come out with a report and say, yes, they have been enriching more uranium ever since the U.S. pulled out of the Iran deal? Well, that's a reality. They, they are after weapons. They are after weapons and after a missile program and after enriching uranium. And when you put that together with their behavior uh, with regards, again, to human rights, with regards to terrorism, with regards to what they're doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States in the region, provoking the United States, what is it that the Iranian regime wants? And you said it perfectly. It's, we need to assume that they are bad actors and not the other way around. Well, you know, if you do get the five minutes with the candidates, one thing you can mention, which I think was, I think the most compelling argument I heard against the deal was that even if they follow it to the letter, it's still a horrible deal. Right. When you're around for 5,000 years, so what if you have to wait 10 years? And that's what the deal was about. And look how fast 10 years goes by, because we're 10 years uh, since the Green Revolution. So if it puts them at the one yard line in 10 years, is that a, is that a safe bet? to make with when you're talking about... Well, some about people were saying they were already at the one-yard line and we had to stop them. You know, that was one of the arguments. Meaning holding them there. Yeah, yeah, we had to hold them there. But it's so murky to get the real truth, as we saw with the, all the stuff that got uncovered by Israel. Right, and why, why does Israel need to do that, that, that legwork? I mean, when you have, again... You normalize, you know, we believe in forgiveness across the board, whether it comes to foreign policy or Judaism or, you know, we're bleeding heart liberals or we're bleeding heart uh, Republicans. It's, many wouldn't give that uh, those words <laughs> or that, that phrase up. But um, I, I think what it comes down to is everyone wants a better relationship with Iran. It's not like anyone is working out of spite here. But the facts need to lead the way. I think what happened when we got into the deal is that a conclusion was drawn and then the narrative was manipulated to match that conclusion rather than the other way around. Well, so yeah. When, when they wouldn't let uh, inspectors into their sites, is that a good sign for someone who doesn't want to have a weapons program? You know, when they were still cracking down on protesters, when, as you said, when we had Americans perishing in Iranian prisons, and we drew up this deal. Uh, again. Right. Uh, th th that's the other truth, Lisa, that I hung on to. And that No matter which country, no matter which religion, I can't stand when religion grabs a tremendous amount of political power, whether that country is Iran or Israel. And I wrote about this uh, a couple weeks ago because they have an ideology. And the ideology is usually not what's best for the people. Right. The ideology is how do I make my people more religious? How do I get my people to follow the Quran and to follow the Torah? Right. And this is clearly a religious ideology well, that is driving that country. The thing about when religion and politics mix and you have political Islam, political Islam is 
a tool to manipulate the masses, and it's been used time and again. And in the case of Iran, um, you know, many of these ayatollahs, the mullahs, their children are in bikinis and in Ferraris and Porsches all across America and different universities and in Dubai. And, um, y- you know, they're not practicing what they're preaching, but yet they're using religion as, um, you know, blinders to be that infallible voice. You know, they did the word this, of God, the word of God, you know, right after they took over and they toppled the Shah in 1979, they quickly got involved in the Iran-Iraq war. Why? Because when you have that rallying around the flag, when you create that fake patriotism, that nationalism, when you create the idea of you can have your son killed in the war and you become your family or he becomes a Shaheed and you become a martyr, you're a martyr family. You get checks from the government. You get to to have this, you know, bragging rights about your child perishing in a religious war, you know, they start to brainwash the masses. And that's exactly what happened to a certain segment. I mean, it happens here as well. Certain segment of the population with the lower socioeconomic bracket always is the victim of this brainwashing and this, again, blinders on. The word of God is infallible. They cannot argue with it. That's why you see so much of this across the Middle East. It's that if they didn't have this, there would be revolutions every single year. You look at a country like Saudi Arabia, you know, they're covered. But underneath it, another world persists. And you have that in Iran as well. I heard from someone very close to former prime minister of Israel, uh, Arik Sharon, who was meeting with George Bush before the Iraq war. And he told him, Iraq is not the problem. Iran is the problem. And this haunts me. Yes, I've heard this too. I've it, heard the story. It haunts too. me because he, sh- he was so right. Uh, yes, and this was this was said, and I've I've heard with, with different players the same story. Um, and we went into Iraq. And we went into which Iraq, which ended up empowering Iran. Absolutely, the Shiite aspect of, of Iraq just got uh, out. Absolutely, it was an, it was it was a very um, tempting opportunity, and the Iranian regime patiently waited and waited and waited and the americans went in there and did the dirty work and as bad as saddam was he didn't it wasn't god because you can't negotiate with god if, if you think you're following the word of god there's nothing to talk about right and as bad as saddam was i think the other side was even worse which, which is i think what's uh Arik was trying to say what sharon was the other crazy irony in this whole thing is you have a population in Iran from the little I know uh, every time I read about this stuff Lisa I hear that two-thirds of the Iranian population are kind of westernized and they they're young they're They're young young. they're like with it this is not a population that's been you know they haven't they haven't succeeded to brainwash there's still this poignant sort of reservoir of dignity humanity and cosmopolitanism absolutely and they've learned they've learned how to work around the system meaning they've learned how to buy alcohol and buy drugs and party and pay off the police when they come absolutely all right now i gotta ask you because i ask (laughs) all my uh jewish iranian friends in la i always want to know do you guys have any connection with what's going on over there and if you do are they clandestine do you have any sources? I have a ton of sources, but that's because of the work that I do, and I've been doing it for years and years and years, and I've, I've gained um, the trust of the people as somebody who will be an advocate for them and, and for human rights. I don't have family in Iran. 
um, very few. Now, your parents are born for you. You're born in America? I was born in America. And your parents are? My parents. Well, my father was a study abroad student in New York um, right out of high school. So my father's been out for many years, and my mother came out before the revolution. So most of our family was out before the revolution. But as you can see, this was, you know, dinner table conversation. Uh, it still continues to be. That's why I, I do what I do, because, uh, you know, uh, they they came out, but obviously they they have much concern uh, for everything for 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 current events in general, but obviously for Iran, uh, the Middle East, Israel, etc. So you were born and raised with this drama. A lot of drama. It kind of makes sense <laughs> that like, you want to study sense. it. You know, might as well. You know, I always had this curiosity. Um, you know, I and I and I was I didn't grow up in L.A., so I grew up in northern New Jersey, right outside Manhattan, and I, um, you know, didn't grow up around many people who looked like me or or spoke you know multiple languages, and um, I, I always had this curiosity about Iran, like why do why do we live here and speak different languages, or you know what what brought on this change, and I think I always used I would ask a lot of questions. So from a very young age. Most of my term papers and book reports were about these topics, whether you know it be um, wars of the Middle East or you know uh, the Iranian Revolution, or you know if I would meet someone who recently came from Iran, I'd be fascinated because I would never be able to step on that soil. You know, tell me what it's like. And I, I to this day, I mean, I, I was a young kid interviewing people, not knowing that, that would become you know Did my, you ever go my back? job. Did you ever visit? No, but I'm mm -hmm. sure the Ayatollahs would be very happy to send me a one-way ticket, <laughs> maybe even first class. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to keep you <laughs> here. Soften the blow. Um, yes. It's interesting because there's Jewish communities from all around the world. My parents were born and raised in Morocco. They were there for generations. I was born there. And my mother, as much as she loves the freedom and the opportunities they got in Canada, she misses yes. Morocco. Oh, there's a part of her that loves Morocco. Absolutely. Right? It's know, an Arab Muslim country. She loves Morocco. And I speak to my Persian friends and they there's a part of Iran that they loved and that they miss. You know, it's it's very difficult to extract your culture and religion, especially when they overlap so much. So much of your deep Sephardic culture is from that crossover between you know, the, the Moroccan and the, the Jewish. Or, you know, I was at a, a gala last night. And every speaker who came up would talk about the Holocaust and how they have the, the memories of their grandparents telling them about the Holocaust or parents even uh, and, and stories and stories and stories. And, and I was the MC, And I, when I came on again, you know, I, 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 I almost felt like I, I had to say, you know, it's not just, of course, the Holocaust. We, I mean, from the point of view of, of six million Jews being murdered ruthlessly it is a different story. But to talk about the memories that we as Sephardic Jews have, it was it was a different type of, you know, cleansing, you know, being not being welcomed or not having that comfort in our home countries as we would like to have. And these are the memories that our, my parents gave to me and I'll probably give to my own children about our culture. Uh, so, you know, I think across but despite, the board... But despite that... There was something that your parents loved about Iran that they've oh, lost absolutely. in America, you know, that, and, and, and that's the poignant part of it, that uh, my mother speaks Arabic. She loves Arabic music. The, uh, the, the, the she food. doesn't associate that with the political. She doesn't at, at all. all. Or the anti-Semitic. She doesn't at, at all. all. You it's know, the, my it's parents the cultural feel the same way. 
culture is so powerful. So powerful. And, you know, my parents have very diverse, you know, um, opinions and, and experiences growing up. So my father went to a, a Jewish school and he recalls getting beaten up and, and people knowing that he was Jewish. My mother had the opposite. All her friends were Muslim. She had no, almost, I would say, no recollection of any experiences or, you know, stories where there was any anti-Semitism involved. But despite the fact both of them, they recall, you know, such fond memories, such fond childhoods, the music, the culture, all of it. And they still look to the Iranian people as, as you know, people they'd like to help and a cause that they would like to help. And they, they would want nothing more than to see a day where Iran is free and the people could be free. I mean, Jews live there, Baha'is live there, Zoroastrians live there, Christians live there. Um, for the most part... Iranians are secular, and I don't think many people know that. They don't. They don't. Tell me about your sources in Tehran, in Iran. Uh, All over Iran. Um, Tell me about I think that's what's important about telling the story about Iran. Iran's not just Tehran. So when you look at whether it's the 1979 uh, revolution that toppled the Shah, or you look at the Green Revolution of 2009, or you look at the uh, White Wednesdays, which are the protests where the women take off their hijab, which have been gaining a lot more momentum over the last few years, you look at any one of these movements, and it used to be that they were contained to Tehran. It's like saying it's a New York City or L.A. Mm-hmm. protest, and then you'd say, well, what about Alabama? What about Tennessee? You know, And that's the question that many would have about Iran. How about the rural parts? How about? And Iran is such a diverse patchwork of different ethnicities even within the country. There's different dialects. There's different religions. There's different cultures, different skin tones. I mean, there's bl- bl- uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed, all the way to almost uh, you know uh, black-skinned. Uh, Iranians. So, um, you know, what about all those people? And I think the one thing that's definitely evolved over time is that these protests have reached the corners of Iran uh, to the to the extent where the last time there was a big protest, which was New Year of 2018, one of the hashtags was protests across Iran. Um, trying to demonstrate to the world community that, look, it's not just Tehran. We are all in this together. Uh, and the issues are secular, right? If I can't feed my children, Absolutely. that is not a religious issue. You know, you nailed it. Revolutions don't take heat. They don't pick up with lofty thoughts of, well, I'm going to sleep tonight and tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up dreaming of democracy and justice and freedom, and I'm going to go out onto the streets. No, because I have to go to work. But if I can't feed my child, I don't care in what language, in what intellectual capacity, in what you know educational uh, level or socioeconomic level I belong to, if I can't feed my child, I'm going out onto the streets because I need a better life for myself. And if I can't get a job, and if I can't get married this because exactly I don't have saw, a job, This is right? exactly what we saw in Egypt where the people had actually, you know, Mubarak wasn't an awful leader. He was not. It's a, it's very comparable, I would say, in, in ways to what you said about Saddam Hussein. It was the dictator that we knew versus the dictator that we don't know. So the question mark for Egyptians was much w- more um, costly than maintaining a, a Mubarak regime, which they saw. The, you know, when, they, when the Muslim Brotherhood swooped in and took the place of Mubarak, they quickly came right back onto the streets and that's because that that revolution didn't answer to the call of the people. And the reason I use Egypt as as a as a, a, a an example is because that's what potentially could happen in Iran because you have a similar patchwork 
of people that have outgrown what their society and what their lives can provide them. So for example, you have someone with a PhD who can't get a job. You have someone who's working four jobs but can't afford an iPad. And what happens? This globalization that that's created mostly because of social media. They see things online. They hear about things. They see and know that they can have a better life and they deserve a better life. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious if uh, you're surprised that the mullahs uh, didn't take a lot of that $150 billion that they got from the sanctions relief to at least buy some time with their people and buy a little love and a little, you know, because Absolutely. because it, it, it's the reverse that happened from everything I've read. There's a real a sense of protest. You're, uh, no, yeah. And again, this is the, the, the perfect question because the Achilles heel of the Iranian regime has never been Trump or Obama or... Uh, any threat other than their own people. Why? Because that's exactly how they came into power. They know that if the people come out onto the streets, it's a much bigger threat than any foreign power could have over them. So you would be right to say, why wouldn't they buy themselves some time and that economic breathing space so that the people wouldn't feel as pinched? Uh, and there have been some subsidies made, mm -hmm. but more than that, they've become more lax on the protests. You haven't seen as bloody or as um, harsh of, of, a, of a crackdown as we saw in 2009. And that's because they can't have that pressure on them for internally as they're dealing with their pressures externally, which would bring us back to today's news uh, of, of this provocation. Uh, what does this mean and how are they going to, in the meanwhile, Again, as we come upon this anniversary of the Green Revolution, are they anticipating something internally and uh -huh. to create this? A diversion. They exactly need a diversion. Exactly right. Because we know for sure that exactly they're feeling right. pressure. Right. We know for sure that the, the right. new sanctions that have been right. put on them for a year uh, is really squeezing oh, them. Absolutely. Correct? And they passed that, you know, part of their, uh, this is the second part of, of your, your uh, previous question, part of their... Um, tactic has always been this propaganda, whether it's internal or external. Internally, when they pass down this burden of sanctions, the economic burden onto the people, and they actually stamp it with a note and say, this is a gift to you from the big Satan who is working on behalf of the little Satan, meaning the U.S. working on behalf of Israel. That in and of itself creates what they hope more nationalism. Right, right. So like we're all victims together. We're all victims together. We're being squeezed. Add to that another layer of provocation. Now the U.S. wants war with us. Right. You, 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 you again bring the people together where they forget about we hate the regime, but we, you know, we, we, we hate the external influences. But this is an old calculation. The people that I talk to on a daily basis, I would say, are much more politically astute they're much more cognizant. You're talking the people in Iran. The people in Iran. My G sources. Give me an example of these sources. Who are they? All kinds of people. Journalists. Oh, a lot of journalists, political um, activists. And what are they saying? Are they saying how dangerous is it to speak the truth? You know what's interesting, and I'll I'll tell you what um, what the, sh the most shocking thing I'm hearing is that they're not afraid of war, that they think it might actually be better on the other side. And I'm sure this is not, you know, across the board, every single person. Of course, people have children. They have lives. They don't want war. They have, uh, nobody wants war. Nobody wants war. But 
if that should mean that that war or some sort of, of, of confrontation with the West will mean for some sort of change internally, then they're ready for it. That's how desperate the people of Iran are. Wow. Uh, how about the Jewish community? You have sources? I have sources within the Jewish community. Look, the Jewish community is very, very... Um, you deal with them in a very... They're not as... as um, forthcoming. Forthcoming. They're not as outspoken because they almost have an unstated deal with the Iranian regime. We they keep our mouth shut. Absolutely. We stay under the radar, and you keep us there, under now, the radar. are you concerned that some of your communication is being eavesdropped on? Sure. I mean, there's been times where, you know, I feel like whether I'm being hacked, um, you know, and I have many layers of protection on, on my social media and on my websites. Um, but sure, there's been times where I felt like I was being followed, even here in Los Angeles. They have operatives. They have tentacles everywhere, everywhere. Um, but at this point, you know, I'm... I'm a known voice. Um, and, you know, I, there's some protection in that, knowing that you're a known voice and they're not going to do anything. And, um, you know, when I have people coming to me, so sources being introduced to, to me through other sources to tell their stories, um, it's a very powerful thing because, you know, if you have a platform to tell those stories, you have to tell those stories. Uh, and I think the Iranian people are grateful. They're grateful to people like you and me to ha actually give them that voice when they don't have one. Um, you know, I'm sure your stories, mine, have been integral in getting people out of prison, in decreasing sentences, um, in, in creating that awareness for people. And I think, again, when you look at the desperation of the Iranian people to have these stories told and to make an iota of a difference, um, in, in their lives and in their, you know, the where they stand economically with regards to jobs, with regards to opportunity, et cetera. It's dismal. My, my, my stories are when I read a, st a story somewhere with a specific name of a woman or a man or a journalist or a poet or a gay who's, like, been brutalized and abused and raped those are the things I try to get out, sure. those individual human stories uh, yes. that are happening, whether it's in Iran or any place in right. the world. That with resonates with me. It's, and that's perfectly said. I mean, I, I never understood why a topic like the Iran deal would ever be a partisan issue in this country. Because, you know, when you look at the reality of the situation, there's, there's all these different layers to it. And whether we look at human rights, human rights are never partisan. I mean, they affect people across the board. And they're affecting people across the board in Iran of all different sorts of people, like economically, you know, different ages, different, you know, you have dancers and you have poets and you have professors. And I got in trouble, Lisa, with my friends when uh, they had the first women's march. Here. Right after, yeah, Trump got elected, huge march across the country. What whatever. were you doing there? No, I got in trouble because <laughs> I didn't go to the march. It was on Shabbat. Um, but I don't know. I got on this kick and I and I because I had spent so much time learning about these women who were being brutalized across the Middle East, especially in Iran, I decided, you know, I wrote a column. I said, why can't we march for them? Oh, well, that's beautiful. You know, because yeah, they, they can't march. Yep. She's in jail. Yep. She just got raped. She's in jail. She was a, you know, an activist. I, I, She's yeah. in jail. So, but, but you know, it, it, it wasn't a nice column. And a lot of my friends said, ah, but we're also walking for them. How dare you? Rain on our parade kind of thing. But no, but you're standing up to the yeah. uh, the organization of the parade. And I think that that's a very important topic you bring up. And I hope this is not too much of a detour, but this is something that's very much on my mind. I just gave a talk on the East Coast about um, anti-Semitism. And, you know, the, the one thing that I don't think people realize 
is when you espouse certain rights in this country at the current moment. We're at a moment where, you know, Americans are truly touting the most tolerant they've ever been. We're so tolerant about gender and about um, sexuality and about race. And we're so sensitive. And we're so we sensitive. We really don't Yet, want to offend people. You look at the intersectionality of things and how the anti-Semitic sentiments or the BDS movement has so easily, easily, and I'm so disappointed in Americans who are truly tolerant that they've allowed this anti-Semitism to creep into movements like Black Lives Matters, like the women's movement, like the gay pride parade. What is anti, what, if, you're, if you're tolerant about one cause, how can you let another intolerant blind cause creep into your movement? Well, yeah, that's what I, the way I phrase it is we become intolerant of microaggressions, but when it comes to BDS and Israel and the Jews, we tolerate macroaggressions. Because anti-Semitism is a macroaggression. Well, it also, I, if I can say this, this is a whole different podcast, I think. But oh, good, you'll I come think, back. You know, it's partially the Jews are partially to blame. We are a, I've always said this, a minority with a majority mentality. So instead of playing the role of the underdog, which we never have, because resiliency is our blessing and, in this case, our curse. We've never played the role of the underdog. So when those who defend the underdog approach this topic, they take the side of those who fight against Israel. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't look like great victims, to be honest with you. Because we don't, we, we've never played we, that role. We've never played that role. It's not how you succeed in life. You speak to any it's shrink. Not. It's not. That. Sometimes the price we pay. But you look at the numbers of our enemies versus the number of Jews in the world, and I would say we're the underdog. And if people are truly after defending the underdog and defending human rights and defending the minority, well, the Jews they are should there. really flip the narrative. Now, speaking of narrative and speaking of underdog and controversy and so forth, a year ago, your name was all over the news because something happened at Rutgers University and, you know, you, you were supposed to speak and for some reason the event got canceled. What oh, happened? Yeah. That was like, Wow. That was quite Yeah, and we yeah, covered it in the event. journal. Yes, I, thank yeah. you. Tell um, us what happened. You know, uh, I, Rutgers University is my alma mater, and I was invited not by a fringe organization, not by a Jewish organization, not by a political organization, but by the office of the chancellor. So the school itself invited me from a year in advance uh, to come speak, and they said, um, we would like to suggest this topic. I looked at it quickly, and I said, okay. What was the topic? The topic was about extremism and free speech on college campuses. When I saw this, and I know that my area of, of work, when I see the word extremism, it usually means terrorism. But what I thought to myself when I saw this, and as it was getting closer and I wanted to just prepare, I thought, well, I'm going to talk about extremism of all kinds so that it fits a larger, po you know, a larger audience. Not everyone can really... Um, relate to being recruited by ISIS on college campus, but people can definitely relate to extremism of different forms, so we'll just talk about that. And I get a call from the chancellor, the vice chancellor, uh, who's a very good friend of mine. He was my professor, actually. Um, that's how the whole invitation came about. And he said to me, I don't know if you've heard, which I hadn't, but one student um, has started a petition um, against you, uh, calling you an Islamophobe, 
And he's quoted you in a talk that you gave at the Heritage Foundation, which is a major think tank in Washington, D.C., for those who aren't familiar, in 2015. And, uh, you know, this looks really bad. I don't know. You know, we're not planning on doing anything about it, but we're just worried. And, you know, we went back and forth until the school said, you know what, they're making a lot of buzz about this. And we're just afraid of what they will do, meaning uh, they were alluding to violence, protesting, etc. At, at the event itself. Uh, they said we're going to have security there, etc. But I don't know. Again, we went back and forth, back and forth. And he said, we're going to issue something in the form of a postponement. We're going to cancel for now, but we're going to issue the PR statement will basically say postponement. So, um, you know, your, your wonderful uh, reporter here, Aaron Bandier, was uh, one of the... Oh, the, we covered it. Yeah, you covered it. You, he was actually one of the first to call me. Um, about 20, 25 publications covered it, including TV, radio, print. But Aaron was so incredibly smart and sharp, he went and found the recording from 2015. So the quote that they had attributed to me said... Uh, that in the Q&A of my talk, I said something along the lines Islamic of... Islamic terror takes its guidance and teachings from the Quran. Right, which I really didn't even have an issue with in the aftermath of hearing it. But when Aaron went and dug up the tape and he posted it to social media, I had said that... Claims to take. Islamic so, terror claims to take. So they, they took away that they one word. Away, they took out the most operative word. And here you have... The guy who started the petition was a Pakistani student who was on the Students for Bernie Sanders campaign. He was also the head of the Muslim Students Organization. And here he is, a senior, probably applying to law school or whatever professional career and lying to make this happen. And the school let him get away with it. Um, what do you call this? Just, just bullying. shut people up? Bullying. It's bullying? It's nothing more than bullying. There's no fancy yeah. word for it. And I said this to the chancellor, and I said, you know, for years to come, when people Google my name, the same person who's called to the UN to talk about, you know, FGM and women in Syria and, you know, uh, Coptic, you know, persecution in Egypt and, you know, all these different stories of the Islamic world will now be called an Islamophobe when someone, when someone Googles my name. So it's free speech for him but not for you. Absolutely. And that's yeah. exactly what I said to the vice chancellor. And, you know, um, thank God I got a lot of support from the media um, and from the Jewish community. And, well, not everyone in the Jewish community. I think a lot of people were afraid of the backlash because the word Islamophobe was used. They um, put a label on you. They put a label. They put a label. That's what they do. They use these buzzwords um, to create this, you know, faux outrage, selective outrage, Um yeah, the quality of the conversation, Lisa, has just been just it's gone down and down it's and emotional. down. And and one of the reasons is precisely because instead of having reasoned arguments, we just have labels and insults. Right. So why couldn't you know, this is what I said to the vice chancellor, like wouldn't it be much more beneficial for me to come there and have this Pakistani student ask me about my point of view? He can decide for himself if I'm an Islamophobe or not. But instead, he shut down the talk. He prevented other students from perhaps learning something or hearing uh, something interesting. Uh, and, and I told him, look, I will have a very robust Q&A portion uh, of, of the of events so that he can ask me whatever he wants. Why can't two people, he of Islamic descent and me, a scholar of the Islamic world, sit down and, and perhaps find where we, where we agree 
rather than shut out the person, not invite them to campus, you know, take away their invitation, and to really use slander as the only tool to shut down the conversation. There's got to be a way to critique religion without people taking it so, so personally. Uh, I mean, God, we critique Judaism all the time. You know, we critique Moses. We critique all that, all of them. You know, we critique God. Because we've created the sensitivity where you know you, you you can't criticize certain people of certain race or certain religion. And at the moment, you know, you you, you can't. You, you know, you do a story about Ilhan Omar and you're an Islamophobe. Or you know, even if, if 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 there's a million you know different points of 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 evidence and sourcing and you know professional work that's done or you know. And this is what, what, what is, it's so partisan. We live in such a partisan world that even Democrats have a hard time calling out someone but like But is it worse than that? I, I wonder sometimes if it's worse than that because, uh, you know, cartoon making fun of Moses, a cartoon making fun of Jesus, cartoon making fun of Buddha, no problem. No media. It's like accepted. But all of a sudden, if it's a cartoon making fun of Mohammed, then, well, I don't know. And the editor will say, well, it's not a great cartoon and stuff. What is it about criticizing Islam that seems to be beyond the pale, which is not true for other religions? Because the, the Islamic community, and I think this has been spearheaded by groups like CARE and others, have used this bullying tactic to shut down the conversation when it has to do with Islam. It also has to do with groups like CARE and others in the aftermath of 9-11, instead of Americans calling upon you know, the Muslim community to work with us in order to, again, shut out extremism, not to shut out those who uh, oppose extremism, uh, we would be in a much better place, and yeah. they would be in a much better place. Absolutely. The irony is that they hide the beauty of Islam. They do. You know, one of my close friends. It becomes wholesale, you know, wholesalely that you, you can't yeah. touch it, so no one even knows about it. Uh, absolutely. Total defensive uh, obsession, whereas I've learned the beauty of Islam through my friend Omar Boom. It's unbelievable. So many beautiful things in it that no one ever gets to hear about because... It's, uh, we can't talk off about limits. it. It's off limits. It's off limits. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of, I don't know, it doesn't help the conversation. No, it doesn't help the conversation. It doesn't help the political future of Muslims in this country. Um, you know, when you don't know about something, you're going to stay away from it. So Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar may be elected into office now, but if this goes, you know, if this continues, I think both Democrats and Republicans are just going to slowly shy away. I mean, look, it, life is not a Benetton ad. You can't just be happy to have that representation by someone who looks a certain way. There has to be a dialogue. I mean, that's what we pride ourselves on as Americans, and we've lost that aspect. Whether it's in politics, in pop culture, we just stay away from it. It's, it's just off limits. There's just such a fence and such a divide. And when they marginalize themselves in that way, I think slowly they they will they will cut themselves off of, of society because how much can you do that and still attempt to integrate. I think the best way, for example, the African-American community was able to integrate itself, and I think, well, successfully, maybe people would disagree with me, and in, in, in certain communities, you look like at inner inner um, communities that are, are, are perhaps still dealing with certain aspects of whether it's crime or... But overall, when you look at 
equality for African Americans. I think there's an integration that took place. There was conversations, there was dialogue, there was an understanding of their experience that now is a part of the American experience. Do you think um, the revulsion uh, towards President Trump has accentuated and reinforced sort of this division and this partisanship where people are just blinded by their, their hatred of them? You know, I get asked this question all the time, and because um, there many you just made many claims. So mainstream right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. It's it's a very good question. It's just that you know I always get asked the question of did he bring about this hatred or you know in 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 always because there's obviously much more divide in this country as ever before as there ever was, but I think what President Trump, what his presidency has done is served as a justification for people to act um, and behave and Their worst think. instincts. Yes. Mm. And, and, and it's always justified with, but the president said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm less concerned with what the president said as what the president does. And look at his actions. Have they not benefited America? Have they not? You know, and I think that when you look back to, to episodes like Charlottesville, People will say, well, he said this. Well, no, he didn't say this. The president was was merely trying to say there's many groups on the ground here and you should listen to each other because they may have a point. He wasn't, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not trying to defend the president. I think that often his rhetoric is quite divisive. Um, but I also think that it's time that we stop using that as justification for lynching and a justification for creating a war zone on college campuses and shutting down the conversation and a justification for defending ISIS because you don't like the president. I mean, you have people who trust ISIS more than they trust the president, you know, and it, it, it's, it's really disturbing. At the end of the day, when you disrespect the U.S. president, you're disrespecting the, the position of presidency. And once he's out of office, that position is still diminished in the eyes of Americans and the world community because we as Americans have diminished him and that position. Yeah, you know, this is the most sensitive subject for me because I just try to hover and understand all sides. I've decided that, you know, we don't need another opinion. So I've really, my my position has been, let me see if I can understand all sides. So Trump haters, I totally understand them. I work to understand them. And people who don't, I work to understand. This is all I've done. It's like some people think he's the cancer. Others think he's the chemo. Right. You know, and they both have views. But what, what, what I've noticed is that the net effect has been a really ugly conversation. Absolutely. We're not growing. Uh, from it, right. whether you hate him or love him, we're just not growing. No, I think because we we also live in a a post factual America. You know, I think that people are less concerned with the reality and more concerned with the partisanship and the emotion that that carries. And he's got so much emotion too. And I so sure. wish he would shut his mouth. Sure, no, so I, often. Oh my God! Just yesterday, those stupid things he said about getting information from other countries it just feels he's such a blabbermouth and he just yeah. vomits these things that it's are so self-destructive yeah. and I've so unnecessary it's like the last thing we need is more oil being put on a divisive right. fire you no know? i agree 100 percent. and it, i think that his his look his advisors probably feel the same way in that um 
it doesn't help. It doesn't help the way that he even, even when he does things that are actually, um, you know, laudable, I think he, he, he doesn't have a good way of uh, presenting them. And I, as, I as, as much as I disagreed with President Obama's policies, he was decent. He had this gentlemanly sure. way about him. And he was, I teach a, my he was kids a podium that. president. And we went from someone who was the, the most opposite. the most polished president we had at the podium to the least polished president That's we have so at the podium. true. And I think that, that if you want to compare them just on that, well, yes, there will be a reaction in this country as to who is standing at that podium. And I always say there's value in being decent. There's value. Sure. Especially in, in, in dignity and how that you speak. Level, yes, you know, especially at that, level, that level. You know, my grandmother years ago, she passed away in 2014, um, but years and years ago, she was a New Yorker, so she would watch Donald Trump, who was the entrepreneur on television, she would say, we need him to run for president. This oh, is yeah, years yeah, yeah, and yeah. years ago. But is she her, still alive? her point, she, she passed away in 2014, before he even had any idea of, of running. But what's interesting is that from, from someone whose you know, point of view, you know, she would watch him and think, he can save our country because of his experiences in business and entrepreneurship at the de at the negotiating table. Oh, well, what's crazy, Lisa, I would ask my friends on the left, liberals, during the negotiation with Iran, literally, I would say, who do you want in that room negotiating Absolutely. with the mullahs? Do you want Obama or do you want Trump? Trump haters told me they would prefer to have Trump in the right. room for the simple reason that the guy would just walk. He and, would and, realize and he's, he's holding trying. a full house. That's what he's doing with no. China and North Korea. Yeah. And it's exactly what he's doing with China and North Korea and Iran. When he pulled out of the deal last May, that was his calculation, that we have the upper hand here and we should act like we have the upper hand. Look, with regards to foreign policy, I think a lot of his calculations, based on his ability to negotiate and based on his outlook on what foreign policy should be, meaning American exceptionalism, we come first, this nationalistic view that the U.S. can be strong again and should be strong again, uh, and we shouldn't cower to our enemies the way that I think President Obama's foreign policy was very different. His his foreign policy was to be nice to the bullies uh, on the courtyard instead of standing up to them like Donald Trump does. But regardless, I think, look, we've always been a nation where the day after election day, people go back to business as usual and hope for the best, even if it wasn't their candidate. And that did not happen this time around when President Trump became president. Uh, and I think as a country, we're suffering for it. So whether you want him in office or you don't want him in office, let's wish him the best and stand back. I mean, the Democrats are, you know, just so wrapped up with the investigations and now with impeachment. And these are such distractions to the much larger uh, list of, of tasks that we have as a nation to, you know, we are behind on cybersecurity. We are behind on, you know, our space program. We're behind on even reading and, and writing for our children. Um, and, and why not focus on, on, on the issues that, again, can healthcare. bring us together? Healthcare is a, a big one. Don't know how I miss that with so many doctors in my family. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but you Speaking know, of your family, do yes. you have close friends who are on opposite sides of sure. you politically? How, tell, tell us, how do you deal with that? Sure. You know, um, I, I have this, uh, this, this uh, ability that many of my friends laugh about of, of, of talking to, to people, and they always think that I'm of their political persuasion, which I'm, I may not be. I might be at a 180. But what's, you know... I guess it's being a middle child, perhaps I can I can credit it with that. But um, there's always a way, and I've always believed this, there's always a way to speak to people from different sides of the political spectrum on the same issue 
to bring them closer together and for them to see your point of view. And it's usually because you speak to the issue in a much more human way and in a softer way. Um, that's why I, 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 I wish this under Obama and I wish it under Trump even more that I had their ear with regards to communications and how to present something. Well, you know, you look, know, the, one of the real popular candidates now on the Democratic side, you know, Mayor Pete, mm -hmm. said an amazing line uh, last week. He said, I'm with you even if you're not with me. Right. He was speaking to Trump voters. Right. And that's the kind of stuff I look for. Yeah. Even Obama, the reason I fell in love with him, you know, that first speech, there's no, you know, the red state, there's red America and the blue America, there's really the United States of America. He was such a unifying force. God knows we need that. We need that. We need, we need someone who has both, um, perhaps actions and words. Uh, and yeah, you know, even if, if, if you're not with me, yeah. I'm with you. Right. Whoever said that. If we can get Trump and Obama to work together, <laughs> a, a, a morphing of those two uh, forces. That's an amazing idea. Yeah. It's yeah, not going to happen? It's not going to happen. Well, how do you see the field, the Democratic field, vis-a-vis uh, -vis 2020? Obviously, that's the big question. I'm not asking you to be a prophet. But right now, it looks like percolating up yes. our, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren. You know, and she's like being the policy wonk. She, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren's brilliant. You know, and if she comes into office, she will make major legislative changes. She will. She will have a mark um, historically on this country. But I do not think she has the likability right now. We, you know, President Obama was quite charming. He was young. He was charismatic. And then you had President Trump, who who's a, he's a, he was a TV actor. Uh, so I think following these two acts, it's going to be very difficult for what someone. What a shame. What a shame. Right. For someone the as person flat, with all the great ideas. You know, I don't uh, you know if, if you agree with her, you don't agree with her. But she she definitely um, is, you know, quite serious, opinionated, serious and a, a doer. So she would she would be somebody who would who would who would now take you the got job Joe seriously. Biden. Joe, you, you know, Joe Peach, Biden, I think, will be the one to take the ticket, in my opinion, just because I think there is a craving after President Trump to have some sort of establishment candidate, a gray-haired, um, you know, experienced politician, uh, and you know, somebody who can beat Trump. Someone who can beat Trump, and I, I you know, at game. first I didn't think that Americans at this moment, given our political and 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 social climate, could overcome. His um, th those accusations of, of, of his you know harassment right, right. And, and such plagiarism uh, plagiarism etc. But I think he he's you know he's that like uh, likable uncle that you forgive. Yeah. So I think he'll he'll be the one to take the the ticket now. Um, I don't know. I think if the economy stays afloat and and Trump is able to bring China around. I don't know. I don't know. I think Chi uh, Trump will have a better chance because well, people are going to vote with their pockets regardless. I uh, think this is this is it's just the truth. You can feel what you want to feel. If you're in good shape, that's uh, how you're going to go vote. Okay, so let's make a deal right now. Okay. Uh, a, a year from now, as we're in the heat of battle, uh -huh. in the presidential election, you'll come back on the studio and we'll, oh, we'll see where we're at. We'll see where we're at. Yes, and I think for the rest of the Democrat uh, candidates, they've They've gone very much to the left, and I don't know if that is where Americans truly feel. 
Um, well, they need to go to the left during the primaries. That's the usual, you know, that's the conventional wisdom. Yeah, I mean, for, for American Jews, it's, 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 it's a tough moment when you had, you know, none of these candidates support APAC or go to the conference. Some um, of them did, but... Did uh, they? I, they, I they remember reading that none the of them lines. had gone on the yeah. side. But I, I, I think there's... A, and, and then to go back to the Iran deal, I mean, these are, these are things that, that concern a lot of Americans, not just Jews. Um, with regards to foreign policy, with regards to national security, with regards to uh, just you know where where we stand, uh, and of course foreign policy people always you know, of course I have a foreign policy fetish maybe you do too David, but I think people underestimate how much it's intertwined you know intertwined with the the economy. Well, at least one thing I like these days is that they used to say, well, there's hardly any difference between Republicans right. and Democrats. At least now there's a real choice. Oh, a real choice. You know, oh, my goodness. there's something to be said for that. Everyone is so different. Yeah, and if for this candidate says he's going to go back to the Iran deal and this one is not, okay, I know where they stand. Right, and I don't think anyone's voting just on the Iran deal as an issue. No, but, but there'll be other issues. There'll be other issues. And I think it, it's it's really a wonderful moment, and I think that, I, I hope. Uh, wonderful, I don't know, but wonderful. Well, I'll <laughs> say, I say wonderful in the sense that I think we've forgotten how lucky we are as Americans. This is my, my patriotic moment. I'm quite patriotic. I think I'm one of those people who, on a daily basis, I'm quite cognizant of, of, of what what I've been given as an American and as, a, as an American immigrant, really, a ch- children of immigrants. Um, so, you know, it, I think when you watch the democratic process, the fact that we can have these debates on live television and we can watch and laugh and cry and <laughs> we can go to the polls. Uh, and yeah, my, my, you know, when I talk about my love for America, I say I can write a column, publish it, uh, beating up the head of my country, criticizing him, condemning him, and no one shows up at my house at night. Yeah, that the beauty of, a, of it is yeah. that you can do such a thing. Right. I don't take that for granted. No. I call it make America grateful again. Yes. Right. I love it. Anyhow, thank you so much, Lisa. My pleasure. We'll see you in a year. Absolutely. It's uh, a deal. Take care.